Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. I must apologise for not being with you last week. Circumstances beyond my control arose, which I needed to deal with, I assure you. It was not my fault. Michael, how have you been? I'm very well, Gary, and delighted to see you're playing the babe the blame game. It's not a game, it's more of a semi-professional sport at this point. Okay. It was unfortunate that we missed last week, uh, because there are actually quite a lot of things that we had wanted to talk about, most of those now being out of date. But there was one I just wanted to mention in passing, just because I love to do so. It's from the journal. Uh, a number of the staff of whom, Michael, I understand, are over in Brussels at the minute for some sort of misinformation junket. So it's good to see them getting around and still taking that EU money. Well, you know, they have to keep up to date with all the latest trends in fact-checking because, you know, you wouldn't want disinformed or misinformed fact-checking to go on. Absolutely not. So on that basis, Michael, I was very interested last week to see the journal expand on the definition of you know what is meant when someone is called far right because it's often a great thing michael oh yes 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 i know where we're going now they did a piece on the three new anti-immigration parties in the doll it was a bit of an odd piece in that i believe the url said that those parties were far right so i wonder if there was some last minute editing uh, possibly at the behest of a legal team but anyway so the, the Farmers Party was in there. Um, I've met some of the Farmers Party people. Don't strike me as particularly far-right kind of farmers for the most part. <laughs> they were talking about one of the other parties. And they gave... Here is their explanation of one of the reasons why they were far-right. That The party mm. was saying that it is seeking to establish a real opposition. And this is a direct quote. A reference to conspiracy theories and far-right political beliefs that current opposition parties are either in cahoots with the government or are not properly representing the will of Irish citizens. So, the journal, Ireland's only official fact-checker for Facebook and an organisation that is going to try and bury in like a tick into the media commission to have itself recognised as one of their trusted fact partners, I have no doubt, believes this. If you have ever thought that the opposition does not represent the will of Irish citizens, which could, I mean, come in the form of, I don't know who to vote for. I'm an Irish citizen, and I don't feel any of these parties represent me. You are far right now, and we hope this is clarifying for you. And also, it's a conspiracy theory. It's also a conspiracy theory. That's the bit that got me. The fact that every day of the week, anybody who has a, a vague interest in politics and is willing to have a conversation with other other citizens of the country, will meet people who say, again and again you meet these people, I don't know who to vote for. I wouldn't vote for any of that crowd. Sure, they're all the same. There's no opposition. This, this, this is a conspiracy theory which Gary is sweeping the country like a forest fire in California at the end of July. It's fantastic. It is, by a distance, the most successful conspiracy theory I have ever seen. And I'm thrown in JFK into that. It's also, it's, it's a very easy one to fall into. Like, it's got a lure to it. Like, most conspiracy theories, you have to believe a series of things which, you know, are, are maybe a bit out there. Whereas to do this, it really, I think you might just need to internally think, I don't think any of these people uh, represent me. Which is a very low bar to entry as conspiracy theories go. I mean, if you start talking to people about it, about how you don't know who you're going to vote for, because you don't think any of them properly represent you, you're now, now you're a conspiracy theorist. You're, like you said, the bar is so is not massively high. You have to believe something like that the basic attitude and culture of many people in Fine Gael 
is similar to that of people in the Social Democrats or the Labour Party or on the progressive wing of Sinn Féin. And you know what, Gary, that does not feel to me like something which is a Herculean task. That I think that you could pick, you could take the Social Democrats up by the head and drop them into the government without, well, two things, without any noticeable difference to the government or any noticeable difference to the opposition. There are certain people, Michael, who, you know, as they're repeatedly kicked in the gut by the government, might look up and enjoy the fact that some of the boots are more feminine than others. You think? It's a question of, of, you know, how much difference that makes, but, you know, the aesthetics will change a bit. And the aesthetics are so important to us all. It's politics. The aesthetics are everything. Well, certainly, you know, the aesthetics were vitally important in the in the far right, as, you, you know, that Pawnshaw for the black uniform and the highly polished boots and the mass formation marching. So, yeah, I can see that. The, the aesthetic is an important factor. So I, I do wonder about this, then, Michael. If yes. merely thinking that the current opposition does not represent the will of the Irish public. I, by the way, what, the will of the Irish public. It sounds like something like it's a little mini essay from Schopenhauer or something. The will of the people. It does have a little bit of the Volk. What is the Volk yeah. of the people? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a bit of an odd one in, in your yeah, fair right weird. if you believe they don't represent the Volk. The, the will of the, the people. We all want to be Germany, but who has the sheer will? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if merely thinking that you're not represented makes you far right or conspiracy theorist, what would they take of the recent poll result which asked, would you consider voting for a party or candidate who holds strong anti-immigration views? And 35% of the country said yes. 35%? Yeah, now I, I went back and pulled the original time they asked this question, which was in September 2021. And I think they, di- they then didn't ask it for about a year because I think they thought, well, you know, how important is it going to be? In 2021, in, at the end of 2021, when they asked this question, 14% said yes. And 76% of people said a straight no. Now, by the end of last year, it was 28% of people said yes. Now it's 35. No has gone from 76 to 63 to 54. 76 to 54. You'd almost think, Michael, that the government don't really have a handle on this. I have enjoyed their uh, their decision to release multiple videos. This is mostly Fine Gael talking about how immigration is necessary to keep the Irish economy functioning because it has been met nearly just singularly with people going, I don't think anyone has a problem with that. Or most people don't have a problem with that. This kind of seems like you're trying to, uh, you're trying to combine some views to make it easier to defend. Well, they... They have basically had two lines of attack or defence, depending on how you look at it. One, I can't describe it really more sophisticated than calling people names. Simply just, let's, that, I love, you know when journalists do that thing when they're being interviewed, and they, they say this in a tone of somebody who's saying something, which has to be said, but they, they're one of the very few people with the courage to say it. And I have heard at least five or six journalists in the last little while say, let's call it for what it is. Racism. Racism and bigotry. And you're going, yeah, but that's what you're all saying. So basically they're saying um, two lines. One is to, to, call, to call the people who have concerns racists, bigots. So 
it's basically call them names and see how that works. Strangely, Gary, not working that well. Calling people names isn't, you know, isn't generating the warm, fuzzy feelings. And the other one is to conflate two completely different issues. And I don't believe, I really actually don't believe that even the, the staff writers of the Irish Times and the members of the, the Oireachtas are actually that stupid, that they themselves are confusing the difference between somebody who is a qualified brain surgeon who is coming over from Islamabad or Cairo or Caracas or wherever uh, to work in the health service and somebody's coming in in a refrigerated container into Ross Lair. I think there are two different categories. Now, I think we should care about the poor bastards who are coming in the refrigerated containers in Ross Lair also, because we you know, human beings. But there are two different things that I think most people have worked out and the reaction. I'm curious if you've had a similar experience, Gary, of many people that I've talked about this is, many people, it's the same question, which is, do they think we're stupid? Do they think that we're thick, that we can't tell the difference between one thing and the other, and they're just going to mix it all up and we're going to get confused and go, oh, oh, all right, that's the people working in the hospital. So, oh, sorry, sorry about that, lads, got that wrong. I won't care about this anymore. It's a pretty classic example of a debating technique called a Mott and Bailey, which is where you have a broader point, and when people push back, you fall back to a narrower point. And you try and conflate the two arguments, basically. So you don't want to have a conversation about misuse of the asylum processes mm. or any negative consequences from that. So instead, you have a conversation about legal immigration. And then when people push back on you, you say, oh, no, no, of course, you know, it also seems strategically unwise to do these two things because they are technically delinked, I think, in a lot of the public's mind. Yes. The public seem to have problem with asylum seekers and a basic fence that this is not working, that the system is being taken advantage of, a basic fairness argument. If you start trying to basically defend that, which is a policy failure, with immigration as a whole, you risk linking those two areas together. And one being so unpopular, it actually drags the other one down with it. And that seems, that seems unwise. Already, the response to people talking about the HSE has been to, anytime there's an issue with asylum seekers, mockingly refer to them as surgeons. Yes. So you can already see that it's happening. At, at most point, you you know, you might want to decide to, to stop, but the government has failed to an incredible level to deal with this issue, and they seem unable to to deal with it. They are moving in certain directions now. The conversation is very much changing. There's talks about more checks, more barriers, about uh, basically trying to ensure the legitimacy of the, the process. And I don't think that will work to stave off a lot of these concerns, at which point the our friends in some of the anti-far-right groups are going to start saying that, well, that's because you're giving these people what you want and you're empowering them. Whereas actually, I think it will fail for the very simple reason that the government is being led on this issue and it doesn't seem like it's doing things because it has any strong position. It's just doing things because the polling is going against it. And that's a very different thing. Also, there's a decent chance, I we shouldn't prejudge them, maybe they will actually be able to execute the things that they want to do. But here, for example, 
uh, it was announced that they're going to expand the number of countries on the safe list, right? And this was uh, to be taken as a token of their, how seriously they're taking this issue and they're going to be cracking down, Gary, crack down on this problem. The reaction, however, of many is going to look at that. Well, you can add 100 countries to the safe list. Since you didn't get, you didn't deport any of the people who are on the old safe list, why should we think you're going to do anything about what is happening to the people on the new safe list? You're just doing something completely performative. Now, that might be unfair. It may be, in fact, the case that they had got better about getting people who had applied who were coming from safe countries and not processing them and deporting them, although the self-deportation thing seems to have been a bit of a failure. I think that people are just going to think, this is just theatre, it's performance. It, you wouldn't do it on the old list. Why are you going, this is, is nonsense. Also, just as a general point, you're talking about linking two things you don't want linked. It has struck me that if you're a government, do you, is it really a good idea to keep repeating the line, our health system would collapse if we didn't import healthcare workers from other countries? Isn't there a risk that somebody is going to start saying more than they, are, than they have up to now? Well, why would our healthcare system collapse? How fragile is it, considering the vast amounts of money that taxpayers pay for it? And why are we not producing enough doctors and surgeons and consultants and nurses? And surely that's a policy failing. And surely the government should be doing something about that, rather than stripping uh, developing countries of their skilled medical professionals in order to bring them in here to support a failing system. I'm just saying, Gary, I'm not sure that it's 100% a good idea to keep harping on about the imminent collapse of a health system which is under your care. Also an element here that is, is worth mentioning. It's something we mentioned, I think, over the last number of years, Michael. The system is widely perceived to be open to abuse, to be massively abused by people who are economic migrants. Nothing wrong with being an economic migrant is very much something wrong for misusing a system that is designed for those who are fleeing the worst kind of circumstances. Well, no, actually, I can say, I'm sorry to cut across you, Gary, but I think that it's for the economic migrant, it's a perfectly reasonable and rational thing to do. I think if there's a failure, it's a failure on our side not to impose, not to obey our own rules. For them, why wouldn't they game the system if they can? It's a perfectly rational thing to do. Oh, I think so. It actually reminds me of one of my favourite quotes on um, government, which is that the man who creates a system which is open to corruption and which incentivizes corruption has committed a sin. <laughs> yes. Because you, you, people will act as you've incentivized them to. But I think the one of the things here that's been clear for years is that the more the system is abused and the more the government lets the system be abused, the more damaging it is to actual legitimate asylum seekers. Yes. Because people will come to see all asylum seekers as frauds when that's not the case. There are people who are legitimately in great need and there is a strong moral argument to help. But that doesn't mean you just remove all the guardrails and let anyone in and refuse to deal with what appears to be clearly happening. And I mean, the system is not fit for purpose and there is massive exploitation of it. That's been allowed to fester for years and it's... It's the same thing you see all over. Things happen very rapidly and people struggle to understand them. And then 
usually what has happened is that that problem has been there for years. It's been ignored. It's created opportunities and risks, and then eventually they're actualized. And what seems like it's happening due to current situation or circumstances is actually because of a decade of mismanagement. And I think that's clearly what you're seeing here. It is, it is going as badly as it is because it was let get terribly bad before it became overwhelmed. On a funnier note, Michael, you were saying about difficult conversations there. The Irish Times had a wonderful article, um, I think on Wednesday. And I think that they've actually gone back and edited the, um, the, the headline. But the initial headline was, let's have the difficult conversation about immigration. And then when you scroll down, the subheading was, how racism, privilege, and a discursive vacuum cloud the controversial issue of immigration. A subheading I saw and went, I don't think that's a very difficult conversation for the Irish Times to have. No, I think that's a fairly easy one. I think everybody sitting around with coffee and chocolate biscuits could nod sagely along and say, and agree fairly quickly. Racism, privilege, and what? Discursive? Discursive vacuum. Discursive vacuum. God, high class. Oh, it actually had a wonderful line that I wanted to give you because I I Mm -hmm. thought you'd you'd like this. So they had, um, it was an article about a podcast the Irish Times did. Now, they had two professors, or sorry, two doctors from Maynooth, which is usually... That was a good start. um, I don't know if they were from the communist geography department of Maynooth, but they're from Maynooth. And one of them, a Dr. Barry Cannon, said the following. The economies of the West were built on imperialism, and racism was almost invented to justify the imperialist project. It's not difficult to tap into the historical racism that exists in our societies, and I think the far right plays on that too. Would you accept, Michael, that racism was almost invented to justify the imperialist project? Where? In China? In Japan? In Tsonga? In West Africa? Uh, the Aztecs? I, I don't know. Which, which imperial project are you referring to? Now, Michael, you know when that's said, there's only one imperialist project it's ever referring to. I know, it's the Parthians. Why do people have such a set down on the Parthians? They always get out of the Parthians. But, you know, they weren't bad guys, Gary, and they were very good on horseback. With the old bow and arrow. It's because the pro-Acadian Empire uh, lobby is just too strong I know, to challenge. I know, It's just, they're out there. They're in the pockets of, of big Acadians. No, I'll tell you the thing that, more than that, the, what was it, West was built on the imperial? The economies of the West were built on imperialism. Now, I don't want to get overly technical here, Gary, From but from an economic history point of view, that's what we call bullshit. Now, Michael, are you going to refer to any of those studies which actually looked at this issue? Because that's unfair. Well, yeah, I, 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 I could do that, but I think that would be unfair. I will refer uh, the, them to the, to the work of Deirdre McCluskey, uh, the economic historian and economist on the subject, and a host of other people who have shown that, first of all, generally speaking, uh, em- empires cost them money. And the more you actually uh, you, you created empires that you actually have to occupy, the Brits made lots of money in trading, and they kept tra- trading costs. But we won't get into that. What made the West rich were ideas. Ideas, inventing things, inventing processes, producing stuff, and that was it. And there are as many books and as many papers and as many histories as you want. That area. I mean, this notion is just bullshit. The Spanish were choked. The Spanish economy was choked on the gold of South America and the silver of South America. If 
if we were built, if economies were built on the backs of the Iberian project, but why the, the, the why is the Dutch economy the first to do what it does? It's just and listen, I'm not going to. It's just that's just pure old fashioned Marxist bullshit. Not even high class Marxist bullshit. Low class Marxist bullshit. I don't think even Marx would have said that. It is actually a very common argument, and it usually depends on particular redefinitions of racism. Um, and oftentimes the concept of whiteness, although it depends on the period they're looking at. It's a very common argument. It's one I've heard. I've never found it terribly persuasive. It's kind of a word game that involves basically redefining racism so that, you know, smaller scale internal or tribal issues cannot be classed as racism. Um, because if it if they can, then that you know it's it's totally incoherent. I mean, I do think there probably is something to the idea that the kind of racism that evolves in Europe, uh, color racism that evolves in Europe, is not unconnected to the African slave trade. That it that you you when you you move beyond the medieval attitude to slavery, which is you know hey ho, shit happens. And say, if you went and looked at the Venetian galleys from which the word uh, the Slav and slave or cognate, most of the slaves would have been white and many of them slaves, many of them Slavs. But when we move out of that from when we, when slavery is just seen as one of those things that happens to you in life and it starts to, there's a sense that it has to be justified that there has to be a moral underpinning to it, then I think there is an element. But that's that's a separate issue. That's nothing to do with the imperial project generally. And I think that that's some, one of the things that you, you see in the United States and one of the things that poisoned the nature of race relations in the United States was this baptism of, a, of racism where they, they see that there was a, a desire to justify uh, the enslavement of only and exclusively black Africans. But uh, no. Anyway. Do you remember the Crosscare report on the far right? Yes, I do. Barry Cannon, the person who gave that quote, was one of the authors of that report. For those who can't, who aren't familiar with this, Crosscare is a is a charity of the Catholic Church, and this report, which Crosscare I believe partially paid for, came out and gave one of the defining characteristics of the far right as familialism. Now, they said that this was a form of biopolitics which views the traditional family as the foundation of the nation. Biopolitics, Jesus, these people are good at inventing areas that they can squirrel into and say, well, let's, inf- let, let's go off and study that and get people to pay us to study that. And then we can have courses on that and maybe degrees in that and maybe chairs and professors and lecturers. What are you doing? I, I'm going to do a degree in so in social theory and biopolitics. I, I believe they did go on to then say, yeah, and also subjugates individual reproductive and self-determination rights to the normative demands of the reproduction of the nation. Oh, um, God. Of course. I just, I believe at the time we pointed out that it was quite odd for the Catholic Church to fund a report saying that a uh, viewing the traditional family as the foundation of the nation as a you know, cornerstone of fascism was... Mm-hmm bit odd given those are the views of the catholic church yeah indeed and the uh, the well what seemed 
to be the point regarding the uh, you know the infringement of the autonomous rights of the individual to control the you know, their uh, fertility et al was fair, uh, uh, a fairly obvious reference to another position that the Catholic Church has we have found the enemy and he is us yeah <laughs> speaking of government policies that are making this issue worse there has been another building burned which was there was apparently talk that it was going to be used to house uh, asylum seekers michael and it's burned down and i'm you know going to go out there michael and make this argument if people keep burning down buildings and no one is arrested for doing so people will continue to burn down buildings that doesn't signal a growing far right. That signals the fact that the state has said to people, you will lose this argument if you have it with us normally, because we don't care. But if you just burn the building down, there will be absolutely no consequences. So what you're saying is you support people burning down buildings. I support the state reclaiming its monopoly on violence. And that sometimes, Michael... You know, issues that seem unrelated can be very related. So, for instance, effective policing of the country might stop people burning down buildings. That seems unlikely. Effective policing in this country, Gary? I mean, come on. Really? Uh, Yeah, I mean, in part, this is a new failure. And in part, I think this is people just realising how low the closure rate of police investigations of arsons are. Did you see, that, by the way, on, on, on a completely unrelated subject, last year 500 members of the force left the Garda Síochána, which I think was a record for what, for any one year. I believe the guards are down just shy of a 1,000 people since 2020. So, I mean, this is a, a great time if you want to win an argument by arson or if you um, have a very good insurance policy and you just don't want that building to be there anymore. You know, we should all have good insurance policies, Gary. It does seem like the state has failed at many levels on many things. Other things it does quite well. But you have this argument, you have this debate on immigration and asylum seekers. It doesn't seem to be going well. So you basically move stuff around, but make it clear to most people that ultimately they cannot decide who's going to live in their community. A finding that would be very, very surprising to councillors and TDs who are familiar with the planning system. But Mm -hmm. I digress. And then you allow basically a trump card to be played with no consequences, where, okay, we're not going to listen to you, but yeah, the building just doesn't need to exist. It's anything. (laughs) I said that the man who creates a system open to corruption is committing a sin. If you... The government is kind of, at this point, incentivizing people to burn shit down. Well, until they reach the point where they provide the disincentive, which is obviously the guy or the gal uh, being arrested, charged, uh, convicted and put in choky. Assuming that any of those particular steps can be eventuated and, and, and then put to, put together the they seem to be bad at putting... Well, it depends on the judge, I suppose. Yeah. Some judges will put them in choky. Some will sympathise and put them back out in the streets. But there you go. That's a whole other subject. Yeah, but I, I don't think any of these arsons... I don't think... I have not heard of any of the investigations moving to anything resembling a conclusion. 
I don't know. Is it is it a peculiarly difficult thing? I mean, is it hard to f- identify suspects? Maybe people are silent because it has almost this, the tone of a political crime. It's, I don't know. Maybe people aren't talking. No, maybe these are very careful arsonists who are not leaving any forensics behind them. Although it's hard because I watch Criminal Minds and they always find something. I don't think we can blame the guards for not performing at the level of Criminal Minds. <laughs> performing, it'd be hard to perform at the level of Criminal Minds. Perform at least, I mean, that's a, that's a little acting joke there. But anyway, there wasn't just stuff about the far right and immigration in the Paul Gary. We saw the absolute collapse. Well, the absolute collapse. Let's not over. Let's not overreact. Everybody is going mad about the numbers about Sinn Fein, right? Oh no, I wasn't talking about Sinn Fein. I was talking about the referendum polling. Oh, go oh, yeah, that's fun. That's more fun. Talk about that. So the people might have uh, been familiar. This is the second poll that's been taken on how these referendums are going to do. How many people are going to vote for them? And you might recall, Michael, the first poll, which was taken, what, a month ago? Yes. Revealed just a massive amount of people were, were very supportive of this and were absolutely going to vote for it. And there was a lot of sort of, should we say, Michael, a certain amount of swarminess of, well, look, the you know, the far right and Iona Institute and David Quinn and these people have no power. They've all gone now. Which kind of reflects the fact that these people desperately want David Quinn and Iona Institute to take as large a role in this referendum as possible so they can position it as a, let's kick the church again, which David so far has taken a sort of, I'm just not going to do that approach, which is wise. But it turns out that the uh, support for the referendum has um, gone down in um, a month. You've got to admit, Michael, staggeringly effective work by the NGOs. Yeah, yeah. It is. I mean, they've got no real opposition. They have not had real opposition. I have the sense that there is some, there is an opposition getting up, gearing up. And it's a lot of, a lot of small, rather independent minded women's groups in particular. And I think that that's going to be a real problem for them because when the actual, when the campaign gets going, there will have to be 50 50. Um, on the TV and on the radio and so on, for, on representation on the site. And my money will be that they will spend, that you'll see the producers of various shows on state and private media ringing up, constantly ringing up people like uh, Ronan Mullen and David Quinn to go on their shows. And I suspect that Ron Mullen and David Quinn will be responding, no, 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 I'm terribly sorry, I, I can't this week. But maybe you talk to those lovely ladies over at the Countess, for example, or, I don't know, the radical Marxist-Leninist lesbian collective. They'd be happy to go on your show, but they don't want those ladies on the show because those ladies are, shall we say, counter-narrative and problematic for them. But I think that's going to be one of the problems. I mean... What's it down? It's down from like 63% to something like 48%, something like that? I think, yeah, it's 48 or 47%. Something like that. Now, the question is if that's a trend. And if, if, if there's any kind of, shall we say, negative momentum going on there, that's going to be a, that's, they're, they're going to be, they're looking down the barrel of lost territory for also. Do you not think that 
if it starts looking like it might lose, I don't think there are that many people who actually care terribly much about this passing, other than the NGOs who suckle at the state's tit and have therefore to go around pretending at least that they do care desperately about it. But I think there are a lot of people who are annoyed and pissed off and but maybe wouldn't be bothered to vote. But if they thought there was actually a decent chance of the thing getting defeated, might say, oh, actually, I think I will go and vote no. If for no other reason, just to give the government a kicking, which in fairness, Gary, is always a good reason to vote. I just enjoy the fact that it's gone from, well, you know, a, a very solid victory along the yeah. lines of the abortion referendum to, okay, people have paid attention to us for a month. Oh, God. <laughs> it has been, we want to, you know, we talk a lot about misinformation and disinformation, Michael. Some of the shit that these people have been, let's say, and there has been this sort of studious, you know, ig ignorance of it from some of our fact checkers. Like, they don't want to be fact-checking what the National Women's Council of Ireland is saying about what the Constitution says about children outside wedlock. Just wild shit. The, the whole church thing, I think, I think, I think is politically it's interesting. I think that for a lot of people, that that's gone. They're, they're, the sting has got out of that. So they're kind of left struggling where to go. And when it comes to stuff, like, for example, saying, oh, I don't, the marriage ban... Uh, like say in the civil service and and in and, and in semi-state companies, but women had that that this was a direct consequence of uh, the constitution, and going on and on about writing long, interesting, interesting articles about the state of the lives of women in the nineteen thirties and nineteen thirty and the the relationship between Dave and McQuaid and all this, the reaction of people is yeah, you, why are you talking to me about that? What's that got to do with today? I have seen, I have seen local political figures blame. So you must vote yes for this referendum and blame the constitutional clauses for the fact that marital rape was not illegal for so much of the state's history. And you do, you do immediately think one. I don't think those two things are related. But secondly, even if they were, then we wouldn't have been able to make marital rape illegal without changing the constitution. And the fact that we were able to do that strongly indicates that the clause had absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, many of the complaints I've seen about the, the clauses, particularly the, the women in the home clause, can basically be summed up with, well, the problem is that that clause was not actually considered important and that it didn't impact on things that it should have impacted on, which is perhaps not the most compelling reason to get rid of it, as opposed to treated seriously as a constitutional clause should be. Well, in fact, I mean, that's <clears throat> ironically, they've drawn attention to this bit of the constitution, which says that the government should try its best to vindicate the possibility that women who don't want to be forced to work outside the home for economic reasons, not that they have to stay in, which we're told, oh, they're being changed. And they're drawing, that, look, this is in the constitution. And there are many women out there going, well, you know what? I would like to stay at home for the first two years uh, of my child's life if I want there, and there are the first five years. All right, and I would like to work part time. Or and this bit the constitution says that I should be allowed to do that. So well, let's. What the hell is going on here? And that's not supposed to be the question they were asking. That was not supposed to be the consequence of having this referendum. Having a bunch of women going around saying, "Oh, why aren't you doing what it says in here?" 
and it's all very upsetting, Gary. But we should we should see. It's going to be, it's going to be it's going to be fun. But I I was referring oblique well not so obliquely to the last week's opinion poll which we missed. Uh, saw uh, a Sinn Féin in that particular poll down to, to what, 25%, which it, it was decline of off a peak of 36%, so it was down like 9, 10 points, and it's been it's down 7 points in a few months. And people have been writing, basically, obituaries, of Shin, obitu obituaries for Sinn Féin. When... All that's happened is they have gone back to roughly where they were or slightly above where they were in the last general election, which everybody agreed was a very, very good result for Sinn Féin. So I think everybody's getting a little bit previous with the with the writing off the, the, the inevitable decline and death of Sinn Féin. But it is an interesting question. What has happened? The stat that I thought was most interesting in the various polls that I saw, Gary, was the decline in the support of young men was marked much more more so than women young the, the decline in support of men uh was very strong and i think you could link that to you know that we've seen other polls about polarization or politics and gender that men are moving to the right and women are moving to the left that maybe the particular cultural political problems that Sinn Féin is facing at the moment are seen as more problematic by men than by women? I don't know. I mean, for a while we were hearing the arguments that these falls in Sinn Féin were not real, that they, you know, they were polling errors or things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, Ireland thinks has much the same thing. They have them down 1% to 29%. It's a clear and persistent trend across all of the polls at this point. It, it absolutely seems that they are losing ground. So one thing that's actually is, is worth touching on is... Uh, they they ask people, would you vote for a party or candidate? Or actually, I think they asked, would you consider voting for a party or candidate without or with strong anti-immigrant views? But they also broke it down by party affiliation, as in who did you vote for the last time? Or are you a member of the party? And it's unsurprising, but perhaps good to remind people of AIN2 was the highest. 79% of AIN2 voters said that they would vote for um, such a party or a candidate. Independents and others, 75% said that they would do so. That's not surprising. It's been widely talked about how the growth in this issue is driving independent others' votes. So not surprising. Sinn Féin, 36%. Fianna Fáil, 27%. And then Social Democrats at 18%. Fine Gael were only at 16 which is to say Social Democrat voters are more open to voting for a strong anti-immigrant party than Fine Gael voters. Yeah, but a 2% difference in that sample size is, you know. No, I would imagine uh, not very much. People for profit at 7 and labour at 6. So not nothing, I think, terribly surprising there. Not surprising, but I would say 36% represents a concern and a problem for Sinn Féin. 36% and Fianna Fáil, I think, appear artificially low here because I think it was much higher initially. And they've lost a lot of those voters. They lost them first to Sinn Féin and now to independents and others, I think is what's happening there. Yeah, now they're just down to core, core believers, true that's believers. The, that's the sort of result, Michael, that you would assume a party that had competent strategic staff would find very interesting and which in Ireland will almost certainly go. 
if not ignored, I think noted, and then there will be a decision made not to act upon. A wise and sagacious decision not to act, because acting is dangerous. Mm. I think the question there for them is when they actually get into the election cycle properly and you know, hopefully they have some time to put immigration behind them and they can refocus on things like housing, can they claw their way back up? But it's it's definitely not where they want to be. I think a lot of what we're seeing in relation to Sinn Féin and also some of the polling on various other issues is going to put some pressure on the government to hold an early election to get these, to just get this done. I wonder what way they'll go in it, though, because there's an argument that you can kind of wait out and see, can you fix some of the immigration issue and then go? Or is an argument that it's just going to keep getting worse and go now? Well, to an extent, it would depend, well, to a large extent, I think it would depend on what kind of political balls the government has. If they actually had the political will to charter, as we have been told, to charter a bunch of planes and in the space of a few weeks to deport large numbers of people, that kind of television, that would send out a certain kind of message to the voters who are concerned and worried about this, that the government is now serious about it, that people who have been down for deportation for a long time are going to be deported. We were told, I think, by the minister that those who are uh, considered dangerous would be prioritised. I thought that was an odd thing to say, Gary, in the sense that it seemed to be an admission that there are dangerous people here ready to be deported that are not being deported. And that seems like a bit of a failure. Or am I wrong? Well, the government did run into that problem that they kept saying things like there's no relationship between immigration and crime. And people kept pointing to examples, because there's a couple now, of asylum seekers who were refused because they're just clearly not asylum seekers and then never left the country. And then the crimes they were committing. So that was a hard one because you can say, oh, I'm not going to comment on individual cases as much as you want. After a while, it starts to look bad. Yeah. I mean, and this stuff of, oh, well, you know, voluntary deportations and we're sure these people left. And then as you question them, it becomes clear they actually have no information on who's left or not. And they've just kind of assumed. We had Fatima ask uh, one of the ministers why they would assume that. And I think it was Helen McEntee. Actually, sorry, it could have been Ben Scallon. Who, well, Ben Scallon who asked, not Fatima who asked Ben Scallon. <laughs> uh, that would be a strange turnaround. That would, be, that would be a strange one. And the the answer they got was, well, you know, once this is declared, they can't get a job, they can't access hospital services, they can't access any of these things. So it would be very difficult for them to stay here. And you sort of think, we have a massive black economy. <laughs> yeah. It probably would. And also, they wouldn't receive hospital care. I would be very interested to see if that's actually true. I suspect if you turn up to an Irish hospital, even if you don't have a PPS number or any other workable, I suspect you will be treated. I think that there would be an ethical requirement if a person presents themselves to a doctor and they are ill, particularly like if they're seriously ill. I think there would be a, a serious ethical requirement that the person be treated i mean under the within the constraints of the, the irish health system that that treatment might take time or be delayed but they would i think at least be t- i i 
It would seem to me to be very strange the first, that they would ask for a PPS number and they'd say, no, I don't have a PPS number, and then say, well, I'm sorry, then we can't treat you. That, that, it's, it seems unlikely. It's not impossible. You know, and like we've heard of hospitals around the, the rest of the world where they perform the insurance biopsy, uh, where they go into your wallet to find your insurance card, and if you don't have one, then you're packed back in the ambulance and sent on your merry way. But I don't think that would happen but here. Actually, unlikely. on, on McEntee's comment, I think it's, it's worth giving the exact comment. I think it's very difficult for anyone in this day and age to be working or living in the black economy. Really? Now, the Irish black economy is estimated at a value of tens of billions of euro. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and limb here, Michael, and say, if your black economy is worth tens of billions of euro, now a lot of that is going to be lads doing stuff cash in hand, which is yeah. criminal, but yes, not what people are thinking. But it's still a massive, um, massive, should we say, more severe uh, part of the black economy. I think there's quite a lot of space for someone to work and live. Would you be able to open an online bank account? Like, say with Revolut, if you had your own document, like your own passport. I think the thing here, Michael, is there would be ways to do it. Uh, I'm not singling out Revolut there. I mean, there would be ways to do it with Irish banks in general. But they would require a documentary fraud. And that kind of goes back to, to what Helen McEntee was saying. I think it's very difficult for anybody in this day and age to be working or living in the black economy is a staggering statement from the Minister for Justice. It is a bit, uh, yeah, it's a bit rich. So, yeah, there's there's things in place to stop people from doing that. But I'm going to assume, Michael, people who by necessity are going to have to act in criminal fashions probably have a willingness to engage in documentary fraud uh, slightly above what we would see from the yeah, rest of the population. When the last time I was getting my high street bank account, it struck me that many of the requirements were an absolute pain for me. But if you are, in fact, somebody who was engaged in a life which was not uh, completely on the up and up, none of this would have been problematic. You would have been able to do if you if, if you were willing to uh, to do bad things. And we're not talking about gro- grossly bad things, but you know, if you're willing to break the rules. It would have been perf- perfectly easy to get the account. It was just, but for the law-abiding citizen, just had his life made just more tedious and more difficult. For things that really were never going to be effective uh, guarantees against people using this, the system in ways that they didn't want it to be used. So, And I would point out again that McEntee's point there, she was saying that because she had said that, you know, how do you know those with deportation notices actually leave the country? Because they have no stats. They, they have basically no information on this. And she said that it was, I believe she believed it, and it was a, an implied assumption. I'm going to ask, based on what? She said, well, you know, what are they going to do? Support themselves through criminal acts? <laughs> Which you'd have to say, as the Minister for Justice, you might have to go, yeah, that seems entirely possible, given the circumstances. Now, just before we go, uh, and since we're on the, top, the topic of... Uh shall we say, of criminal justice et al. and people doing things and not doing things. Just for for uh, regular vis- vi- uh, listeners, we will know that we have occasionally referred to a certain individual called Nayab Bukele, who is the coolest dictator in the world, self-described, he's, although he's not really a dictator. He's the president of El Salvador. And Gary, you may or may not know that elections are being held in El Salvador. Is he still polling at 90% approval? 
No, Gary, his uh, vote has collapsed. It looks like he's going to be elected to, pre to be president with only 83% of the vote. However, all the votes, a lot of the votes uh, haven't, haven't come in yet. So while it does, he, he will be reelected, that number may go up. So can I, just to repeat, as uh, when he declared himself the victor of the election, not officially, but he declared himself, he's, he, had, he was running at 83% of the vote. That's not a bad. That's not a bad number for a, a democratic election these days, is it? Yeah, I saw uh, Al Jazeera's response was that he uh, he claims election win before official results announced. And you're like, I think at the point you're polling at that level, you kind of know you're going to win. It'd be very strange if you didn't. The uh, I love the line from Reuters where they're discussing his success and the fact that. Uh, Murder rates have gone from being the most one of the most dangerous countries in the world to being one of the safest and safer than Canada. And I love this like this kind of weasel language. But some analysts, Gary, some analysts, unnamed, have said that mass incarceration of one percent of the population is not sustainable in the long term. I think he's up to more than two percent of the adult population now. But you know what? The message for me from that is, Gary. If you get somebody, shall we say, a strong man and a strong government, I'm not saying Caudillo, I'm just saying, who takes strong action, the people, it turns out, give not that many fucks about civil liberties and the niceties of constitutional government. And I'm not saying I approve, because actually I don't approve. But there's a political lesson there. 83%. There are... There are 60 seats in the El Salvadorian legislature. Mm -hmm. His party is predicted to win 57 of them. <laughs> and no, there has been no complaints I've seen that the election is rigged. No, no, none. <laughs> we, 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 for those of us who are paying any kind of attention to El Salvadorian politics, we, the, the, the discussion for some time before when, when the election was upcoming was where who the opposition would find to run against him. And they were, person after person was going, no, no, what's the, really? No, I'm gonna waste my time doing, no, stop. It, it, the struggle was finding somebody to run against the guy. Yeah, they tried to put up a, a united opposition front because they realized that was the only thing that was gonna do. They failed to do that because Michael said no one wanted to do it. And now there will be on projection, three opposition seats. The to explain this, the Al Salvadorian murder rate before he got into power was about 103 per 100,000, which is insane. It's ludicrous. There was something like 17 murders a day at, at one stage in it, and an average of six. It was crazy, crazy numbers. By the end of at, at last year, and this is based on official data, and there are some concerns about it, but there's also a general acceptance that if it's not exactly accurate, murder rates have legitimately plummeted. But the official rate is 2.4 per 100,000. He has reduced murder by 98%. It's incredible. So, and what we've talked about, Gary, before in this context is that murder is obviously the the top of the tree when it comes to crimes. It's a bit, a bit like you, your wolf or your, your lion is your, the top of the, 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 the predator 
<laughs> but underneath it, it's going to be symptomatic of a vast array of other crimes that these people are committing as well. They're going to be assaults and intimidation and thefts and burglaries and sexual assaults and rapes. And all of those other crimes are down as well. And the simple capacity for ordinary El Salvadorians to live in some kind of peace. Also, the economic benefits have been, have been, have been tremendous as well. But just this is what happens when you give, pe you, you give people the opportunity to live in security to live in a, a degree of peace when be previously before they were being terrorized uh, by by criminality. You take that and you, you take that away at so many different levels and it's just transformative. And I don't see uh, President uh, Nayib Bukele losing any elections anytime soon. There have been some grief on some of the newspapers on the ground going asking voters who they're voting for and why. and. At that point, it's it's all just his voters. Just, yes. There's no one else. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, it's 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Well done. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that an Irish Irish politicians would go to bed at night you know, and dream about. Um, you can imagine Leo in his PJs lying there thinking, oh, to be naive, bukalele. Oh, to be loved. Now, there are some people saying his election, his re-election is unconstitutional. And there was a very technical thing with the constitutional court where it was a kind of a ruling where uh, they said, you know, he could stand for re-election, but he couldn't do certain things in the role of presidents for, I think it was six months before he took power. Um, and people are very unhappy about that, but that was what the constitutional court said. Now they're saying he packed the constitutional court. There's a long back and forth on this. But the general thing is the public don't give a shit. Just don't seem to care. Just don't care. Just don't care. It's very upsetting. One actually thing that, that, that was interesting before we sign off, Michael, from some of the reports I've seen on this, is when reporters have asked his supporters, or even just general people, you know, what about the innocent people who are going to be caught up on this? Because, you know, you're going to have to... You're, you've imprisoned so many people. You have to have some innocent people. Oh, I don't doubt that there are there are people in prisons in El Salvador who should not be there. Now, I think El Salvadorian gangs very much helped by getting really into an aesthetic that involved full body yeah. tattoos and that is open, also true. An open yeah. celebration of their crimes, yeah. which, you know, was probably a sign of how bad things had become, but certainly made uh, cleaning it up. There is no sort of, and we should stop. There's just a, yeah, it's impossible to avoid that and yeah, it needed to happen anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ruthless. It really very little abstract thinking along the sort of the Dwal Rawls or Dworkin and taking right seriously line. If you get the feeling very few of these people have done advanced degrees in moral philosophy in Harvard. Anyway, I think we we can now safely sign off, and we will be back next week. Bye bye.